Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker, and tonight I'm joined for the first time by Sam Bright. Sam is a journalist and author of the book Fortress London, Why We Need to Save the Country from Its Capital. We have lots of very important stories to cover tonight. The tragic story of the trans schoolgirl who was killed yesterday. We're also talking about the racist riot outside an asylum hotel from Friday night. We're talking about the political context in which the earthquake in Turkey and Syria took place. And we're, I suppose, on a lighter note. We're talking about Lee Anderson and the row which has emerged by his appointment to become deputy chair of the Conservative Party. A murder investigation has been launched after a teenage girl was found dead in a park in Warrington, Cheshire, on Sunday. 16-year-old Brianna Jai was found lying on a path with multiple stab wounds. A boy and a girl, both 15 and from the local area, have been arrested in connection with the killing. Brianna was a trans girl and the police initially described the incident as a targeted attack. They also said this. At this time, there is no evidence to suggest that the circumstances surrounding Brianna's death are hate-related. Patrols have been stepped up in the local area and officers will remain in the Colchiff area to provide reassurance and address any concerns that residents may have. The family of Brianna have since released this statement. Brianna was a much-loved daughter, granddaughter and baby sister. She was a larger-than-life character who would leave a lasting impression on all that met her. Brianna was beautiful, witty and hilarious. Brianna was strong, fearless and one of a kind. The loss of her young life has left a massive hole in our family. And we know that teachers and her friends who were involved in her life will feel the same. We would like to thank everyone for their kind words and support during this extremely difficult time. We would like to thank the police for their support and witnesses for helping with the investigation. Reports have been circulating online that Brianna was subject to alleged bullying at school. The Liverpool Echo reports that the school Birchwood Community High School declined to comment on those allegations. And though the precise details of the killing are yet to be determined, this tragic incident has understandably refocused attention on the transphobic attitudes frequently broadcast by Britain's mainstream press. And some of the media have now faced allegations of transphobia even in their reporting of Brianna's death. For example, the Sunday Times included these two paragraphs in their initial report. So they wrote, a murder investigation is underway after a teenage girl was found with stab wounds in a Cheshire park on Saturday afternoon. A few hours later, they updated that report to remove all explicit references to Brianna being a girl, instead describing her as, quote, a transgender teenager. That updated version of the article also deadnamed Brianna, which means to state her name as it was before her transition. Now, following a backlash, the dead name was removed and Brianna is now described by the Times as a transgender girl. To discuss the significance of this tragedy, earlier today, I spoke to Uglia Stefania. Uglia is a journalist, author and co-director of the non-profit film company My Generation. I began by asking her what she makes of the police stating that there was as yet no evidence this killing was hate-related. It's hard to tell because obviously it's, it's hard to speculate, but I think as a trans person living in the UK at the moment, where there has been a real rise in, in discrimination and hate crimes towards my community, I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out that it was hate-related, because I know that trans people have been suffering due to increased transphobia um, in the media and partially also you know, by the government and, and, and so on. So I think it wouldn't surprise me if it turned out to be hate-related. And I want to talk about that question of transphobia in the media and in politics, because, you know, we've talked about this on, on the show before. It does seem to be rampant in certain broadsheet newspapers and among certain politicians. But it's difficult to see how those 
attitudes would directly feed back into younger people. You know, you don't normally see teenagers reading the Sunday Times or listening to Suella Braverman's speeches. So could you sort of describe how this broader climate might be impacting how younger people feel? Yeah, I think the way it will impact young people is that when we look at bullying in schools, for example, there has been a real issue um, in schools in the UK with both homophobic and transphobic bullying. So I think the way that young people will start to to feel the impact of this is through their peers, you know, subjecting them to discrimination um, and prejudice and, and so on. And I think young people are on social media a lot. So they do see a lot of different things online, um, for example, on on lots of social media platforms. So I think it does feed down to the young to the younger generations in a different way, even if they might not be, you know, reading the mainstream news sites, some of these things will still come to them. And I think especially when we're talking about young LGBT people, because they will hear of this, you know, through through social media and so on. So I think it will really make a lot of young people feel quite unsafe because, you know, being a trans person already is quite vulnerable. And when you're hearing about a person your age, you know, living in a small town that that can be a target of such a a horrendous crime, whether it was a random attack or or a hate-driven attack, it's going to really make people feel quite vulnerable, especially, you know, given the climate that's currently in the UK that young people are very much experiencing. You know, we've seen healthcare for young people being, being taken away and being affected by a lot of the transphobic sort of media debates that are being had. So their lives are being impacted in, in many different ways by all of this. And I think this will only make them feel even more unsafe uh, and even even more afraid of, of being themselves um, in society and at school and at home and, and everywhere they go. I've also seen commentary, which I found quite persuasive, sort of suggesting, you know, even if it's not that teenagers are sort of generating a hatred of trans people because they've listened to Suella Braverman and read the Sunday Times, it might be the case that where you might have had teachers proactively trying to encourage an attitude of gender inclusivity in, in classes, there's now a bit of a proto-Section 28-style environment where teachers feel worried about being more proactive about challenging um, transphobia and that kind of thing. I don't know if you think that's sort of plausible and, and, and relevant here. I think it definitely is because, you know, schools are where young people are, are, you know, spending a lot of their time. And I think a lot of teachers that are speaking quite actively and positively about trans issues are going to get impacted by it because there might be other colleagues or there might be other people that might start to criticize what they're doing and it might start to affect their work. So I think anybody that is that is, you know, fighting for trans inclusion, whether that's in in schools or in their workplace, is going to feel this and is going to feel, you know, the, the pushback and the backlash. So I don't think, you know, I think there's definitely a feeling for people working in these sectors that there is, you know, this sort of unspoken section 28 coming back in a way. Um, and I think that's what people are afraid of because some of these sort of anti-trans groups have actively campaigned, you know, for protections that trans people have to be removed from UK legislation. So it isn't surprising that people are afraid that things might go back and there might be something similar to Section 28 where, you know, they'll ban talking about trans issues or trans inclusion will will become a thing that teachers won't really be be allowed to talk about. So I should clarify just because I didn't make it clear in my question. Section 28 was the policy introduced under the Thatcher government, which essentially banned what they called, I think, the promotion of homosexuality in schools. Obviously, it meant that teachers were very scared of of talking about that kind of thing. Obviously, no one was ever promoting it in the first place. We were talking about inclusivity. I want to move on, though, to talk about the coverage um, of this tragic killing. And in particular, I know there's been lots of upset 
about the Times having decided to initially dead name Brianna. And I want to get your perspective, I suppose, for, for an audience that might not be aware of why that's seen as offensive or upsetting. Why is that a problem that they chose to do that? When someone, you know, dead names or misgenders people, it's it's using names that they don't use anymore. And um, and I think in the case of of Brianna, you know, she was a young woman that had come out earlier in life and and was living as herself and was supported by everyone in her family. And there was no no reason to to mention her old name because that was a name that that she wasn't using anymore, and no one in her life knew her by that name anymore. So it seemed it seems almost quite really disrespectful for them to to drag out that old name because that certainly wasn't the name that she was using. And I think when we talk about dead names and misgendering in general, it's it's a fundamental thing of who you are to have a name and a pronoun, you know, referred to you and, and have people use those to refer to you. I think, you know, we only talk about names and pronouns in terms of trans people most of the time, but we all have pronouns that people use for us and names that we want people to use. But for trans people, it becomes a, a bigger issue because people have been known by a different name and a different pronoun and getting people to change that can often be quite challenging for trans people. And there is a lot of, of hurt that can be carried with that, especially if people are refusing to use the right names and pronouns. And that's essentially signaling that you don't really respect who people are and you don't really believe that this is who they are. So for example, when Times uses an old name, it is a sign that they fundamentally, in my mind, don't fully respect that she is who she is. And they're taking the opportunity to, to signal that they don't fully believe she is the woman who she, who she was. And I think that's really sad in the case of a 16-year-old whose life has been cut short and, you know, was was ready to, to live as herself and will now never be able to, to grow up and, and live fully as herself. And for a media outlet to disrespect her memory in that way, I think, is is really quite quite serious and just quite yeah, quite quite really horrible, to be honest. One other issue which I've seen sort of mentioned on online, which is the idea of a death certificate, and this is a conversation we've been having recently when it comes to gender recognition reform and gender recognition certificates. And as far as I understand it, if someone doesn't have a gender recognition certificate, which you know. You, you won't if you're if you're 16, then you will be recorded in your gender that you were assigned at birth, not the one you identify with. This, I think, is you know, understandably caused a lot of anger and upset. Could I get you to to talk about that, please? I think this case illustrates quite clearly some of the issues that we're facing in the UK in terms of trans right and legal gender recognition. Because as you said, if you don't have a, a gender recognition certificate, um, you can't have your birth certificate changed. Um, and if you don't have that change, and when you die, it will be recorded what's on your birth certificate. So in the case of, of Brianna, she was only 16, and you can only apply for one when you're 18. So in her case, it's likely that her death will be recorded um, in the wrong gender. And I think that's a really, a really big issue that, you know, even in death, trans people won't be respected and recorded as who they were. And that was one of the, the reasons why some of the campaigns were to lower the age limit so people could get a gender recognition certificate at 16 or even younger. And, and I think that illustrates quite clearly why it's important, because, you know, for a lot of people, they're just debating this in a, you know, online on social media or in the parliament or whatever. But now we're seeing a case of a young woman who is going to be adversely affected by this because the government hasn't been able to commit to, to making life easier for trans people. And it's really quite sad because there are countries around the world that already have much more progressive laws, which allow 
kids and, and young people to change their gender markers, often with parental consent, but often at much younger ages than in the UK. So it's really quite shocking, you know, how we never really talk about the real life cases and how it really impacts the lives of real people. And now we have a case of that. Um, but sadly, it's it's because of an horrific murder that happened. And it's it really illustrates that the debates that are often being had in Parliament or in the media aren't really taking into account the lived experiences and the real experiences of trans people, which in the case of Brianna is, is really, really tragic. That was the journalist Ugla Stefania speaking to me earlier today. Let's move on to our next story. The police have arrested 15 people after a violent racist riot erupted outside a hotel housing asylum seekers. The suspects, aged between 13 and 54, have been detained on suspicion of violent disorder. The incident took place outside the Knowlesley Suite Hotel on Merseyside on Friday night when by around 6.30pm the hotel was surrounded by around 400 anti-migrant protesters. Rioters reportedly armed with hammers yelled, get them out. The refugees remained inside the hotel, causing the rioters to turn their anger on the police. Fireworks and other missiles were thrown at them while the windows of vehicles were smashed. Soon a police van was set alight and emergency workers were even beaten. The riot was not the first signal that the hotel was being targeted. Just days earlier, far-right group Patriotic Alternative had unfurled an anti-migrant banner outside the building. They've also waged campaigns outside of other asylum hotels, along with other far-right groups like Britain First. And after the attack, white supremacist Mark Collett, who founded Patriotic Alternative, posted this on social media. The people of Liverpool were protesting again last night in Knowlesley against the housing of illegal migrants in hotels. The resistance against the replacement of the indigenous people of these islands is growing. Tommy Robinson also piled in, so he said, a clear message sent to the police, to the UK government and to the hotels who house illegal economic migrants accused or suspected of grooming school children. So you can see the far right really piling in, all incredibly unpleasant. Knowlesley was targeted after footage circulated on far-right telegram channels of an alleged asylum seeker harassing a schoolgirl. That footage has not been verified, but it didn't stop Home Secretary Suella Bravman from posting this on social media. I condemn the appalling disorder in Knowlesley last night. The alleged behaviour of some asylum seekers is never an excuse for violence and intimidation. Thank you to Merseyside police officers for keeping everyone safe. So that was the Home Secretary apparently blaming the asylum seekers for the terror they had to endure on Friday night. Lots of comparisons I saw were to Donald Trump saying good people on both sides, Suella Braverman essentially saying bad people on both sides. And that, of course, is the same Suella Braverman who used this language about asylum seekers in the House of Commons just three months ago. Let's be clear about what's really going on here, Madam Deputy Speaker. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. Some 40,000 people have arrived on the south coast this year alone, many of them facilitated by criminal gangs, some of them actual members of criminal gangs. The riot came in the same week that Suella Bravman accepted all the recommendations of a review into Britain's Prevent Anti-Terrorism programme, including that far-right extremism should no longer be a priority. There is as yet no indication at all that this will cause any kind of rethink. But what about the people who are the targets of this hate? 
Ahmed is a resident of the Nowsley Suite Hotel who arrived in the UK just a month ago. Sky News asked him how he felt trapped inside during the riot. Afraid, so afraid. We hear uh, UK in the safety uh, when come, uh, I can sometimes afraid. Yeah. Uh, shock. No scenes have left the residents too scared to go outside. Claire Mosley works for refugee advocacy group Care for Calais. After visiting the hotel on Saturday morning, she told the Mirror this. They're all pretty intimidated, which unfortunately was the whole point of it. All of them just kept saying to me, can you get us moved? Can we go somewhere else? We don't want to stay here. That was the thing. They kept saying, we don't feel safe here. They were saying, we haven't done anything wrong here. We didn't come here to cause any trouble. They're victims of really bad things and they are coming here to escape from these horrible things. They can't leave the hotel. None of them want to walk down the road. I am really not sure they would be safe to walk down the street. Sam, I want your initial thoughts on this. I mean, obviously, horrific, shocking scenes. Is it a surprise that we're seeing this in in Britain in 2023? No, absolutely not. I mean, we've seen Britain first, um, another far-right group on the border at Dover, I think flying drones to try and spot asylum seekers and unfurling banners for years now. We all know about the increasing radicalization of rhetoric against asylum seekers and Im- immigrants in general in this country. So to see, to, yeah, like you say, to see violence on the streets is shocking, but I think it's entirely predictable with the way that our politics is going nowadays. And there's been a lot of debate online after this happened about how to characterize these people, these people who are protesting and sort of people debating, are these fascists? Are these far-right agitators? Are these people from the local community who have been outraged and think that they're genuinely there to protect young women. I mean, obviously, it's a racist protest, but you can talk about the different motivations that someone might find themselves there. I mean, where do you stand on this? How do you think we should interpret that particular discussion that's going on? We don't know, factually, what motivated these people yet. And I think that in itself poses a dilemma for us, a question. You know, I've been monitoring the far right for many years now, and a lot of the mobilization takes place online in sort of subversive, private social media channels. And frankly, as journalists, we've, we've not been good enough at monitoring their activities because we're too obsessed with Twitter. And I think the establishment, the authorities, parliament in legislating, these groups and these social media channels have, been, uh, have not taken up the mantle either. And yeah, we need to consider, obviously, there'd be ramifications, I think, quite positive ones in general of throwing the lights of Tommy Robinson and Katie Hopkins, et cetera, off Twitter. But then they found themselves in these sort of back channels of public debate. And we need to consider exactly how we interpret these and how we police these both in a formal and, and an informal way uh, in future, you know, how we interpret these things. I think the context I potentially find most scary is that if this had happened in a different place in a different time. So I can use a comparison when Angela Merkel decided that Germany was going to open its doors and welcome over a million Syrian refugees into Germany. And it was obviously in her political interests for that to go as well as possible. Now, you did get, you know, the rise of a far right in that country, not to the extent that people feared. And of course, that was also to do the financial crisis. But, you know, you did see some backlash, but it was in the interests of the government at the time to minimize it because Angela Merkel's political career She'd taken a big risk and the successful integration of those people were important to her, you know, not necessarily morally. I mean, I can't see into her soul, but politically it mattered to her that that went reasonably well. 
Why I'm so concerned at this current moment in Britain is I do think that Suella Braverman, and obviously with Rishi Sunak's endorsement, he put her in that position. They seem to think that the stoking of tension, hatred is actively in their interests. And, you know, the more conspiratorial side of me thinks that this is partly one of the reasons why they are putting up so many asylum seekers in hotels. Because, it, you know, they say, oh, this is just because there's so many people crossing the channel. And then the, the more sympathetic explanation for it, even though it's not particularly sympathetic, you know, the bureaucracy was overwhelmed. And so they've been doing this slowly because of funding cuts, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why we have lots of asylum seekers up in hotels. My bigger fear is that they kind of actively want asylum seekers in these hotels because it, it makes this an issue. You know, if you've got communities where you've got a lot of people arriving all at once and staying in the same hotel, when they're in you know, legal limbo, right, it's difficult to become an integrated member of a community when you're dumped in a hotel, essentially. That is, to me, you know, the far right will be licking their lips at that opportunity to stoke up racial tension. If you have a government whose interest is in integration, that's the opposite of what they'll do. So you think about how we as a country dealt with Ukrainian refugees. The government, obviously, they fought they want this to work. What did they do? They arranged for people to have a Ukrainian live in their house. Now, actually, they didn't put enough money into that program and there wasn't enough follow up in that program. So I think there have been some difficulties, but not remotely the kind of difficulties that you'll get if you demonize a group of people and then all put them in a very visible place in a bunch of towns and cities across, across the country. And I think it doesn't seem too conspiratorial to suggest this when you see that tweet from Suella Bradman, which is very Donald Trump-esque to say, oh, you know, they're bad people on both sides. Sam, I want your final thoughts on that, just in terms of, do you think the government actively want to see this kind of thing happen? Because they think that sort of migration becoming an issue and becoming a, a divisive, polarizing issue is the only way they could potentially win the next general election. Yeah, I mean, we know that the government's, the Conservative Party's definitely, it's, it's trying to find an alternative to Brexit, you know, desperately in any way that it can. And immigration and asylum is top of top of the list. I, what I find ironic about it all, Michael, is that you say that they're doing this politically because it will benefit them in the polls. Where do the Conservative Party stand in the polls? They stand at 20%. So the British public clearly doesn't support this brand of politics. And yet the Conservative Party is not learning from this and he's not changing, which suggests more deeply, more fundamentally, that it, that it is malicious towards these people. And on a more ideological level, it just doesn't want to treat them fairly in modern Britain. You're going one further. I'm saying it's opportunistic. You're saying it's just outright evil. Um, I, maybe somewhere in between the two. I think even if it is motivated by opportunism, that's evil. It still falls into that category to my mind. Let's go on to our next story. More than 36,000 people are now confirmed to have died since last week's earthquake in Turkey and Syria. It is a tragedy of almost unfathomable proportions, but as well as being a human story of grief and heroism, it's also a political one. And in Turkey, at least, the aftermath of the earthquake has seen increased scrutiny and anger over building safety standards. The issue was explained well in a recent interview on Channel 4 News. Here, Christian Guru Murphy is speaking to a civil engineer whose company constructed multiple buildings in Adana, a city 100 miles from the earthquake's epicenter. So this is one of your buildings? Yeah, one of our buildings. How many have you built in this city? How many like this? Yeah. About 50. 50 buildings like this? 50. And have any of them had no, no, collapse? No, no, any problem. If I look at this building, yes. can I tell whether it is well built or...? 
to the regulations. Let me show you inside, according to regulations. Ramazan points out the four reinforced concrete columns on every floor of this building. Why do these sorts of columns protect the building? Because, uh, as you see, one of these in this direction, yeah. the other one in opposite direction. Yeah. This is the regulation of building uh, against the uh, earthquake. If you do it like this, yes. does it mean that the building stays straight? That, that does. Or does it, does it sway? Oh, oh, of course, it will be uh, shaped, but it will uh, not... It will not collapse? Collapse. Uh, we say that, we believe that the earthquake is not killing people, but bad with building, they are killing the people. So that line is really important. The earthquake is not killing people. Bad buildings are, are killing people. And the engineer, Krishnan Guru Murphy, was talking to, he, I mean, the context here is really moving as well. He, he lived in a well-designed building that didn't collapse. His ex-wife and their daughter, though, were in a different building. He went on to explain what happened to them. My uh, daughter, she is injured. But she's okay. She's in hospital just now. This morning time I was there. She's okay. But today she has learned that today morning we had to talk her that the mother died. She little unfortunately, daughter and me myself, we little cry with together. Her mother died in the earthquake. Yeah. Today she died. We we had to tell the uh, to the today. It is tragedy. Big tragedy. In this part of Turkey, how many happy childhoods like Jansu's have been shattered? Now 13 years old, she has lost her mother and every possession. So, did it, what did it look like? Was it like one of these blocks? Uh, yeah, they were, that was like the like same the, size. The same size. How many people were in this block? There were 120 people. Uh, 120 people. They were living there. They were there. Uh, only four of them saved. One of them. It, it was my uh, little daughter. Uh, to losing mother, it is not so easy. It will be a difficult life for her and for me together. When you know so much about these buildings, do you feel angry? I'm angry, of course. The most thousands of people, they are angry. Such a powerful segment from Channel 4 News. You're speaking to one guy who his life, his experience, I mean, draws out just so much of the tragedy and so much of the scandal associated with this, with this earthquake. To talk more about why the thousands of people in Turkey who have lost their homes, their livelihoods and their loved ones might be angry at their government, angry at the political structures around them, I spoke to Jihan Tugal. He's an associate professor of sociology at UC Berkeley and an expert on the political economy of Turkey. We don't think about earthquakes as political things usually, but uh, th this one, as well as the uh, previous Earthquakes and their damage in Turkey were thoroughly political, not just politicized, they were political to begin with. Uh, so the, the backdrop of this is actually the 1999 earthquake, because it was in response to that earthquake 
that the currently governing party, the Justice and Development Party, promised the people that the same tragedies would not recur again, recovery efforts would be way better than in 1999, building codes would be way better, and there would be no shoddy construction, uh, squatting would stop. They promised that and they delivered only that. So squatting really did stop. So instead of squatters and medium contractors, medium-sized contractors, everything was monopolized by giant contractors and state production of housing and infrastructure. So a really top-down, uh, heavy, a top-heavy uh, state capitalism combined with uh, the worst of monopolist uh, neoliberalism at the very top. So instead of you know squatters and small contractors building many shoddy buildings, as happened in the 1980s and 1990s, what we got in the 2000s and 2010s was uh, the government, the municipalities, the housing agency, and uh, the richest people in uh, Turkey, uh, the top five contractors and others of similar size to building uh, horrible roads, horrible infrastructure, buildings, cheap buildings, unregulated buildings everywhere. So uh, the Chamber of Architects and other experts had been warning that this is going to be really awful when an earthquake hits. So everybody knew this. There is no surprise here, unfortunately. It's a tragedy, but it's not a surprise. Everybody knew this was coming. And we also knew that the recovery effort would be horrible because the government no longer re invests in recovery efforts. I mean, we don't have the infrastructure for recovery, not simply because it's a corrupt government. I want to underline that because, you know, you get a lot of this in international coverage. Uh, people are writing or speaking as if this happens because of authoritarianism or bad culture, you know, Turkish culture. It has nothing to do with that. This is a developmental model. They knowingly, purposefully, they withdraw money from safe, sustainable development and welfare and recovery and safe infra infrastructure. And in order to grow fast and catch up, uh, with the major capitalist countries so that Tur Turkey can become a huge imperial power. I mean, that's their fantasy. So in order to do that, they, they want fast, uh, uncontrolled, unmanaged growth. So this was a very conscious choice. And this was the, you know, AKP or Justice and Development Party miracle that was uh, so widely celebrated in the late 2000s by the international press. So what uh, international coverage now does, does not acknowledge is that what they celebrated, all of the buildings built during the economic miracle they celebrated caused this catastrophe. So people are completely oblivious to this. So this is an internationally created calamity. Not, it's not because of Turkish culture. It's not because of, you know, quote-unquote corruption. If you mean by that, just, you know, some people not doing their job or putting money into their pockets illegally. No, this is a developmental model, internationally endorsed and imposed on Turkey, actually, in, the, in 1980, but made worse uh, by the state capitalism of, of this government. So neoliberalism was imposed on Turkey twice, 
1980 and 2001. And after 2002, this current uh, far-right government took that imposed model, but added also a, a really savage state capitalism to that. We've seen in this country how neoliberalism can lead to you know, housing disasters in the form of Grenfell, of course. An earthquake just means this is amplified on such a massive scale. I want to talk about the recovery effort. I mean, I've heard complaints that the Turkish government has been slow to respond. At the same time, I do just kind of feel like this is such an enormous catastrophe that even a state with high state capacity, you know, if a huge proportion of your country has been virtually destroyed overnight, it does seem difficult to see how could you have a perfect response to that. What do you make of that? I should have prefaced everything I said by saying that a 7.8 earthquake followed by another 7.6 earthquake would wreak havoc anywhere in the world, including the advanced capitalist world. Uh, so, yeah, we would still have thousands of deaths uh, in our hands if Turkey were an advanced capitalist country. But we wouldn't have tens of thousands. So, you know, that's partially uh, or, you know, mostly because of shoddy construction. But then there is the slow and uh, semi-effective and in some areas quite ineffective recovery effort. Uh, So we have to acknowledge all three of these things. The magnitude of the earthquake, the shoddy construction, which is, as I was saying, internationally imposed and, you know, made worse by uh, the government, but there is also ineffective recovery. And we don't, uh, you know, have the full scale, the full details on uh, how and why this was ineffective. I'm I'm sure these details will accumulate. But another way, uh, another window into all of this is just looking at how uh, the government responded to minor calamities in the very recent past. So just two summers ago, there were wildfires. And again, the cause of the wildfires is mostly man-made. You know, it's it's not simply natural uh, calamities. Uh, But then there's that. So, you know, we we are kind of creating these wildfires, not only through global warming, but also pretty bad construction, uh, invasive construction into the forests and also uh, unrenewed power lines, etc. But then... Once the fires are there, there is ineffective recovery efforts. Why? Because, again, it's the same reason. The government does not want to put money into this kind of thing so that we can very quickly grow, build a huge military, and, you know, fight overseas, you know, control the Eastern Mediterranean. I mean, that's that's their vision. They want to catch up with the West. They want to be a player at the table. And this is why I should add, you know, this uh, this model that takes uh, money away from everything uh, humane and puts it into the fastest uh, delivering sectors and ultimately into the military, that this twist on neoliberalism, this state capitalist and imperialist twist on neoliberalism is the reason why uh, the international community can no longer stomach the AKP because they, they don't want this aggressive player to uh, join the inter-imperialist rivalry as a potentially medium to large uh, size power. So it's not because of the people dying. It's not because of the 
the money that's being taken away from welfare and recovery. That's only the cover, you know? I mean, the real thing they're, they're really concerned about is that Turkey is getting more and more aggressive and starting to be, uh, well, not, not really starting to be, but aspiring to be delusionally, if you ask me, an effective imperialist country. That was Jehan Tugar speaking to me earlier today. I thought that comment on sort of how the international community, quote unquote, talks about Turkey is very interesting. Sort of, it used to be the wonder child. They said the Turkish model should be exported to the whole of the Middle East. This is how you have Islam and democracy. And what my guest is explaining there is that actually that was the period where some of the seeds of this disaster were sown because it was growth at all costs. And that was clapped and praised by the international community. It's now that Turkey wants to have some sort of independent foreign policy, which you know tends to be quite aggressive and reactionary in, you know, by the way, that's when they're suddenly getting cold feet. And now we see um, all this talk about how Turkey's gone down the wrong path. I thought that was very, very interesting nuance, the kind of thing you don't normally see on the mainstream news, even though we did show an example of, of Channel 4 doing pretty well on that front earlier. Let's go to our final story. Rishi Sunak's promotion of Lee Anderson has prompted a heated debate about class and culture in Britain. Anderson, now Tory party deputy chair, has made headlines for his socially conservative views and actions. These include an insistence people can feed themselves for 30p a meal, the targeting of the trans comedian Eddie Izzard on Twitter, and most recently, his support for the death penalty on the basis that, quote, nobody has ever committed a crime after being executed and a 100% success rate. Unsurprisingly, Anderson's appointment provoked a fair amount of concern from the left, but the right are fighting back. Take a look at this commentator on GB News. This appointment is a really smart move from Rishi Sunak, and so long as it goes well, it's probably their only chance of doing reasonably well in the Red Wall, because Lee Anderson is very popular with that demographic for obvious reasons. And now, I absolutely adore Lee Anderson. I think that he's wonderful. I agree with him on most things. Go on, do, what does it for you? I do not agree with him on the death penalty, though, for the same reasons as you just described. I don't think that you can ever really be fully sure enough to sentence somebody to death. Although he has made the point that in the case of, say, someone like the murder of Lee Rigby, that if something is caught on camera, you can be absolutely sure. But for me, it's more that I don't think that the state should ever have the right to be able to well, execute someone. we already do a battle. That's true, but I think the ethics of war are a very different mm. thing to, to punishment in, in, in a domestic sense. But I, you know, I think there are so many things that I agree fundamentally with Lee Anderson on. I think that he really understands the working classes, which is my own background. Um, I think that his comments um, recently also to do with net zero and people being um, fed up of that. And I think that's something you're seeing across the world, increasing discontent with the way that net zero policies are actually affecting people's daily lives, particularly when everybody is really mm. feeling a squeeze right now. So I think Lee Anderson is really a man of the people. He understands the base in the red wall, the people who famously lent the Conservatives their vote in 2019, in a way that the, the rest of the leadership of the party just simply don't understand. So I think it's a fantastic appointment, even if I don't agree with him on the death penalty. But we shouldn't demonise people in the way that I think he has been, and people calling him 30p Lee and things Calling like that. I think, I, think there's, I think a lot of that is actually just old-fashioned snobbery. Now, the 30p leaving, I don't see how that's snobbery because that's he's there trying to mock poor people, not the other way around. In any case, that was the conservative commentator, Emma Webb. Um, the views she expressed there are shared by a bunch of her peers. Um, I'll just show you Ian Martin. He's a columnist at The Times and editor of Reaction. That's an online magazine. He tweeted, this wasn't the Twitter pile on, on Anderson revealing. This is seven years since the referendum and still very little reflection about what happened and why. 
And then you've got Dan Hodges from the Mail on Sunday replying, precisely, it's staggering. First of all, that GB News clip, I've never seen so much garbage packed into less than a minute in my, all my life. That it was terrible. With Lee Anderson, I think it's snobbery, but not in the way that everyone thinks the criticism of him. I think that the snobbery comes when you try and associate Lee Anderson with the North, as Emma Webb was trying to do, you know, the man of the red wall, as GB News likes to paint him out as. And he's not. That is swallowing Lee Anderson's rhetoric, which suggests that actually uh, Northerners and Neanderthals, I mean, Lee Anderson's, he's from the Midlands anyway, so, you know, people from former industrial towns and Neanderthals, I saw that comment over the weekend. When in reality, that's a complete, that's a complete distortion. In the same way that Emma Webb suggesting that people are fed up with net zero is a, is a figment of the imagination. There's universal support for, for uh, measures to tackle climate change, included in the Red Wall. And you just have to look at the latest polling from the British Social Attitude Survey. 61% of Northerners are left-wing, more than people from the South. In terms of liberal values, 56% of people from the North and 57% of people from the Midlands either rank as liberal or somewhere in between liberal and author authoritarian. So Lee Anderson is not the man of the North in any way. And I think to believe that is actually playing into his game and uh, is, is showing a wider snobbery towards the North and probably people's underlying assumptions about the Red Wall. I kind of accept what you're saying. I'm very sympathetic to it. I do want to show you, you know, potentially some polling that might problematize this slightly. So this is from YouGov. I think they did it very recently. So this is from January this year. They asked, should the death penalty be reintroduced for cases of multiple murder? And we're looking here at the population as a whole. 52% of people say it should be, and 36% of people say it shouldn't be. So he's on the side of the majority of people on that question. On the question of where these ideas are concentrated. So if you look at London, which is normally, you know, we're told is the metropolitan Remainer elite place, 46% of people oppose the death penalty. I mean, cases of multiple murder, only 37% support. And then if we look at the, the breakdown for the north of England, you've got 58% of people support the death penalty in this situation and 31% of people oppose the death penalty in that situation. So, you know, I don't want to read too much into that poll, but you can see how there might be some people who suggest that these opinions do put Lee Anderson to some degree more in line with opinions in the north of Britain than in places such as London. I mean, would you, how would you respond to that, Sam? I mean, as I've written in the book, London's very much an outlier in the UK in terms of social values as a whole. So London doesn't conform to even the broadest or the broader Southwest. So I think it's quite, it's quite tricky to, to compare London to other parts of the country. I'd say, you know, if you're going to put Lee Anderson in the bracket of, you know, your average man in the North, I think that's probably a bit of a stretch. I, I'd say that plenty, but it's, it's the same as the Brexit debate, to be honest with you. It was written up as, you know, this red wall revolt when the Southeast delivered more Brexit voters than any other region comfortably. So I think that we need to widen our, widen our understanding of region and particularly regional prejudice in this country, because unfortunately, there are still lots of regional, there are still lots of biases, there are still lots of reaction reviews in, you know, regions that typically aren't maligned in the way that the North and the Midlands are. In the discussion about Brexit, and I suppose now discussion about the Red Wall, I think uh, sort of discussion about this in its most crude form says, oh yeah, that's where all the reactionaries live. 
I think in the more kind of nuanced form, you say, look, there are lots of groups of people with socially conservative views in Britain. You've got older pensioners in the South East, older homeowners in the South East, sorry, in the South West, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this key group of voters who used to vote Labour, who are economically left-wing, but socially conservative. So, you know, older white people potentially with manual jobs in the past who are, have become this important group of swing voters because they align with the Labour Party on economics and maybe align with the Tories on, on social issues. And I suppose the, the idea that Sunak strategists are thinking is that the reason they won in 2019 is because they had a candidate who could neutralise the economics question because, you know, at least explicitly, he wasn't particularly economically right-wing. I'm talking about Boris Johnson, of course, and socially was socially conservative. And I think Sunak is hoping that Lee Anderson is going to provide a, a similar symbol. I mean, is there anything to that at all? It's the 20% strategy, isn't it? It's the coming third strategy behind the Liberal Democrats at the, at the minute. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it strikes me that if we had an election today, that it would be a very different conversation tomorrow about this. We'd be talking about the resurgence of progressive views in this country, the rejection of the culture war. And the fact is that, you know, insofar as Brexit has been a forever war for the commentariat, I think that people have actually changed their views relatively quickly on it. They were cemented during that period when there was the parliamentary prevarications about Brexit. They wanted to see Brexit done, which is why Boris Johnson won in 2019. But now that it's actually been delivered, I think people are looking at Brexit with fresh eyes and are saying, hmm, actually, what Brexit epitomized and what it has delivered, I don't necessarily agree with. And I think that voters are not quite as staunch and not quite as... You know, and those reactionary voters that you talk about, I don't think they are quite as hardline as, as many people write them out to be. And they've, they've changed their minds on a lot of these things. I want to talk about one more element of this story, which is party management. So this is from apologies to our audience for reading from The Sun. This is Lee Anderson penned a piece about why he left the Labour Party. And I just think this quote is, is, is relevant to this discussion. So he wrote this. Last week before Prime Minister Rishi Sunak appointed me, I was interviewed by a magazine. I told them that I thought we should have the death penalty for people like the terrorists who killed Lee Rigby. The response was predictable and revealing. And he goes on, the London media, people with hashtags and flags in their Twitter biographies and lefty politicians were outraged at what is, in my neck of the woods, a completely mainstream view. By contrast, my bosses, the PM and Conservative Party chairman, said that while they didn't agree with me, the party was a broad church and that I was hardly expressing a fringe view. This is why I have found my natural home with the Conservatives. Now, I wanted to ask you about this, Sam, because to me, actually, this seems kind of like a sensible approach to politics. Like, obviously, I disagree with the death penalty, but I don't think you shouldn't be able to engage in mainstream politics if you disagree with me. And I think what this reminded me of is sort of like how the Labour Party seems to take a completely different approach, where they sort of say, if you even have a different position on Israel-Palestine, you have to apologize or lose the whip. And I think it does seem a bit more grown up to have a politician say, look, he disagrees with me, but that's fine. It's not exactly a fringe opinion, as we showed in the opinion polls. You know, it's arguably a majority opinion. So we're not going to discipline the guy. What do you think about that? You know, thinking about political strategy, what Trump and Johnson have shown us is that you've just got to roll with it. Like, as soon as you deny and as soon as you apologize, unfortunately, you admit defeat. And I think that plurality of views is a good thing, you know, especially when a majority of the, of the population support it. I would question if, you know, we saw those figures drop considerably and it was a minority view whether I would like someone with those views to be part of the, the governing party, I'm not sure. But I think 
the tentative approach that Labour's taken, you're absolutely spot on with. And I think Labour hasn't necessarily learned the lessons of the past few years of, of populist politics, and it, it hasn't adapted its strategy to the same effect. And that's, that's going to cause it to, to really get caught up in the media narrative, and it won't be as effective as Lee Anderson is, unfortunately. You know, he presents himself as a man, but he's a mouse. And Labour's getting beaten. He's on the front page of all the papers and Labour's not, unfortunately. And so it's got to get smart to it. The commenters are going wild for you, Sam. I just want to throw out a curveball. Babylon's burning one. Why do you disagree with the death penalty? Do you want to give that a go? Do you want to take a bite on that? I mean, ironically, I said that Emma Webb was talking absolute trash. But the one point that I agreed with her on was that I don't think the state should have the power to kill people. That's just a fundamental liberal belief that Lee Anderson should believe in as supposedly a small state conservative, but he doesn't. And that's just like baseline. The state shouldn't be able to do that. You can't get killed and then kill someone else, but you might kill the wrong person. And also, I think, yeah, there is this idea that I think is pretty strong, which is to say that there is something morally corrupting about the idea that you could just kill someone within your judicial system. For now, Sam Bright, thank you so much for joining me on Navarra Live this evening. It's been great. Thanks for giving me a run out. I'm sure the audience will be hearing from you soon. Thanks for watching this evening. Make sure to come back tomorrow at 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.